He was a useful tool and nothing more. Oh. Eh. Dangerous Story Hour in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 124 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to stop, collaborate, and listen to each other. But first the rogue traders head to church in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign, and later Prince Shizor is insufferably sexy in the character Creation Forge. So, first off, uh, some news out of the publishing world. Xanathar's Guide to Everything topped the nonfiction best-selling lists for, I think, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Yeah, and like it was like top 10 on Amazon. Yeah, it's the fastest-selling RPG book of all time. Which is weird to me that um, it's nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay, yeah, it's like a it's a technical manual, right? right? It's it's like how to play chess, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's also about like the fiction of the pawns, yeah. <laughs> and why does the queen want want to move so fast to kill everybody? <laughs> Was she trying to get away from the king? <laughs> right? Maybe it's because he's lazy. <laughs> In your chess game, you can have the queen limited by five steps. <laughs> it is interesting though, because. We didn't give a great review to Xanathar's, so while it is the best-selling RPG and therefore D&D book of all time, and certainly 5 ebook, I think it's the worst 5 ebook. book <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so its popularity, I think, is probably just a reflection of the increased popularity of RPGs and D&D specifically in general. Yeah, which is uh, always good for the hobby as a whole, because strong healthy D&D means strong healthy gaming communities means more people who are interested in playing other games than D&D at some point. That's right. D&D is good for you. Right. It's and a, strong bones. It's the the rising tide lifts all boats. I think it also goes to show that uh Wizards of the Coast's uh marketing plan of basically talk about Xanathar's every single day with a bunch of videos um for months works people got hyped about the book and then they all went out and bought it yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i i still think if they released more books um they might sell fewer copies of each but isn't it about the money and how the number of copies sold but don't you have to pay people more in order to do that because they're relying on a lot of freelancers right yeah sure so less content means less money you need to actually pay to people yeah as, but... a, as opposed to like a full-time team that would be paid no matter what Right, but if you you know if you make two books and earn you know three quarters of the the total money on either, you still gain fifty percent on your revenue. Yeah, I guess it's a question of is there a finite amount of money out there that right. people are willing to spend? Like, okay, I'm not going to drop more than seventy five dollars in a year on D and D, and so like if there are two books that are sixty bucks each, I'm still only getting one book. Right. I don't know. Well, I think they're only fifty dollars each, so or less depending on where you buy. Depending them. on where, yeah. Oh, it's interesting. I'm also curious uh, what the sales breakdown is between like Amazon and friendly local game stores. We should start asking. Actually, if you work at a friendly local game store, uh, let us know how sales of Xanathar's and um, RPGs in general have been, I guess, maybe over the last two to three years, I think has been sort of the the renaissance. Mm-hmm. 
And if you work at Amazon, just send us money. We have a Patreon. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> uh, moving on. This is also your last chance, last call for your gaming triumphs. Um, whether it was an exciting moment that happened in a game or an exciting moment that happened around your gaming table, uh, we would love to hear about it and uh, share it for one of our holiday episodes. So you can send that to us at totalpartythrill at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, gather everyone around the Yule tree to hear the gaming triumphs of others. I think that's a regular tradition. And then, and only then, can you... Um, Roast chestnuts on an open flame. I was going to say air grievances. But oh, right. That, okay, it. yeah. <laughs> Feats of strength. Well, check out my barbarian. Right. <laughs> speaking of getting roasted. Oh, I thought you were going to go. Speaking of Festivus for the rest of us. <laughs> Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And the crew of the His Enduring Light has rescued the survivors of the warp reef-stricken Chartist vessel Ambition and have elected to return to their ship uh, before they loot the Ambition. We're not looting it. We're rescuing the cargo. Right. Well, right. (laughs) Because you knew the Ambition is working for a rival rogue trader, Lord Captain Duhon Roth, and it was carrying special cargo in its primary chapel. Yes, quote-unquote, special cargo which we don't know what it is, and apparently the people running this ship don't know what it is either. Yeah, so you haven't decided whether you're going to return the cargo or you're just going to keep it for yourselves, but either way, you got to loot it first before you can have that moral conundrum. This is just salvage, okay? (laughs) These people were going to be dead, and we definitely have let a bunch of our guys die in order to get this stuff. So I think it's fair game. Yeah, I think it's salvage in the sense that you're trying to salvage this op. And our reputation. <laughs> yeah. Because your last trip aboard sent your Seneschal tricks to the Medicaid with a brutal gut wound um, in the sense that a bloodletter demon removed all of his guts for him. But they're, you know, being replaced with aug- augmentics right. as we speak. <laughs> and Brian is currently playing a different character, yeah, a cap- backup character. Captain Zarkov, <laughs> one of your armsmen. <laughs> All right, so the warp weirdness has begun to recede in the rest of the ship. Power has been restored. So the best thing to do is to go as quickly as possible to our destination, which is the primary chapel. Why is the cargo being stored in a chapel? That was That's Trenk's question. Mm-hmm. That seems like a bad omen. Or a good omen. Sure, I guess. I, I mean, maybe it's something so holy and powerful that it has to be venerated in the chapel. That's a, that's. I don't want that. Holy and powerful? <laughs> that doesn't sound like something I can fence. <laughs> I wanted guns. <laughs> Pirate guns. <laughs> yeah, so you return with your expeditionary force to the Ambition, uh, set your perimeter, and begin making your way uh, to the chapel. And you pretty quickly pick up a trail of blood along your path. Yay. So we keep following it because we're dumb. Yeah, there's no signs and greedy, of combat. And greedy. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> No signs of combat, uh, no bodies, no no idea what the source of this is, but the trail keeps getting larger and larger, and as you as you near the chapel, the halls are basically washed in blood. Um, and then the runes start showing up. The profane runes of the archenemy um, are inscribed in the walls. They're um, drawn in blood, or um, they're just, you know, defacing every surface uh, that you can see. And this starts causing your armsmen some trouble. 
Yeah, we can't let this stand. And also, you know, it is causing us issues. So I believe we pull out some flamers um, and people start... Purifying. <laughs> yeah, undesecrating the place with holy Prometheum. Right, right. And and this is your perimeter now. So you basically reach the outer doors of the chapel. Um, the armsmen can't go further without, you know, falling into convulsions and and bleeding noses and those sorts of things so you guys have the willpower to advance you tell them to do what you can to purify and you move forward as you do that um the chapel itself has clearly been desecrated right uh there's the stink of chaos rituals um there's blood everywhere the every bit of imperial iconography has been defaced and scratched off or uh, replaced with chaos runes or or simply just corrupted with symbols of chaos. Um, whoever did this did this with a purpose. But there's still no bodies. Correct. So there's just blood everywhere. Correct. I don't like this. Well, you reach the inner sanctum. Not liking this, still having a bad feeling about this. But what else can you do but throw open the doors and find out what awaits you? Uh, a body but it's alive. <laughs> yeah, it's a big body too. <laughs> it's a uh, it's an 8 foot tall monster in crimson and silver power armor. <sighs> power armor. With massive pauldrons bearing the iconography of a flaming demon skull on an open tome. Uh his face is scarred with profane symbols and he's got two of his battle brothers standing in front of him. Yeah, I love how you're like, "Oh, let's describe the the monster you face. Oh, and there's two more. Yeah. There's two more of them. <laughs> they're uh, they're hoisting a strong box, actually. It, it is the first thing you've seen in this chapel covered in holy imperial icons. Yeah, completely undesecrated, which is interesting and terrifying. And also they're holding it. And there are three of them. There are three chaos space marines here. Yeah, these are word bearer chaos space marines. The uh the Astartes of the first traitor legion. And the sergeant, with his uh, hideous face exposed, begins to laugh in a booming, supernatural voice. that. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. All right, so this week, we're talking about collaborative storytelling. Ultimately, that's sort of like the most succinct description of RPGs, right? Like, hey, how do you play that D&D game? Well, you, t- you tell stories together. It's great. We all get together and we, we tell stories kind of like around the campfire mm-hmm. is essentially what I tell everyone. I, I always say we're playing cowboys and Indians, but we have a way of knowing whether or not I actually shot you first. Yeah. And the Indians win. Well, regardless. I Sometimes. Mean, <laughs> cops and robbers. Cops and robbers. Yeah. But we, we know if you actually caught them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's what separates uh, you know a tabletop RPG from a video game that has to have all its lines of dialogue pre-written, um, or like you know remember those old choose your own adventure books. In an RPG, players give the input and the GM responds, or players talk to each other and another player responds, and you you create a narrative together that none of you could have come up with on your own. So the reason that we're discussing collaborative storytelling now is that um, for our game group we have started playing blades in the dark which is a very collaborative storytelling game about um fantasy heists and and fantasy crime (laughs) basically um but also genesis just got released which is the fantasy flight generic version of edge of the empire um strip out the star wars and and leave it and both of those games are are built around very narratively driven 
but collaborative interpretation of dice rolls. So it makes sense to kind of take a step back and say, what is the goal here? What is collaborative storytelling? What, why are we all doing this? Because um, I think things have changed a lot from the origins of D&D is like, you know, chain mail, but over a long term and with a little bit of a story. Yeah, with individual characters that have actual names rather than Company 6. Yeah, or <laughs> Draw me each. <laughs> My name backwards. So we have talked a bit about this kind of thing before. Uh, if you listen to episode 64 about narrative control, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about how you can actually hand over the reins of the narrative to the players. You know, Ask them what's in the room. Ask them what's over the next hill. So if you want to hear more about that kind of collaboration, go ahead and listen to that episode. For the more granular collaboration that most groups do on a day-to-day basis, however, that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's start with the benefits. Uh, what, what are the reasons to employ collaborative storytelling? Well, first, I think it increases the amount of investment that players have in the story. So if you think about if you are sitting around a campfire and someone is telling a story, like in a traditional storyteller sense, um, maybe they're really good at it and maybe it's very engrossing, but it's still ultimately their story, the one that they're telling. And it's one that they've probably told multiple places uh, to many different people. But once you are soliciting player input, once it becomes a conversation rather than uh, just one person essentially giving what is a a very interesting lecture, then you end up creating a, a story that couldn't exist before, doesn't exist anywhere else, and that players feel ownership over. Yeah, and... As with any time that you invite multiple people to collaborate uh, and and give them ownership, it also leads to surprise. Um, neither the GM nor the players know exactly what's going to happen next, uh, and that's even you know before you add the element of randomness through dice. I know what's going to happen next. I'm not going to do anything, and I'm just going to walk in on the day of the presentation. <laughs> right. I hope that everyone else collaborated really well. <laughs> just just riff. Just going to wait. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for color. <laughs> uh, but but I think we agree that the the best RPG stories seem to come out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to see this in our Triumphs episode. Or we're already reading a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's it's when you leave the session and you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea any of that was coming. And right. that, you could be a GM saying that. That's like all my best sessions. I had no idea they were going to go that way. <laughs> well, you also didn't do any prep. So Well, hey. Uh, it's also much easier to run a game like to play or run a game if you don't have to bear the entire brunt of creating the story for you know six different people right you know and that's if you're a gm who doesn't really allow player input you're essentially railroading your players but that means you got to write a a novel and run them all through it Mm -hmm. and and if you're a player even in like a, a total idealized theoretical sandbox that just means the GM has said, where do you want to go and what's the story you want to find? And now you have to figure that out. Yeah, and I've definitely been in sandbox games where it's like, I don't know, give us a hook. Uh, like, I've, I've been in non-sandbox games where I was like, <laughs> hey, I got to be honest, I'm lost here. What are you expecting from us? <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, because... I want to pick up your thread, but I'm not sure where it is. Yes, I would love to pick up what you're putting down. Please drop something. Right. <laughs> so in order to facilitate collaboration you need to make sure that you're actively soliciting input 
And that's on both sides, whether it's it's the GM. I mean, obviously, we think of the GM saying, you know, asking players, hey, you know, make sure you give me a backstory. Make sure, you know, you let me know what you want to get out of this game. But players as well, you you want to be actively soliciting input, not just from your GM, but from other people at the table. You know, look around when you're trying to decide what quest to do and say, you know, what is it that everyone here wants to do? Not simply uh, volunteering. Well, here's what my character wants to do. You know, this is what's important to me and my backstory. And you want to actually reach out to other people at the table. You don't want to have to depend on individual players speaking up on their own. Yeah, and I think that can be especially important when you're dealing with new players or just shy personality players. Simply being the loudest or <laughs> most frequently speaking person doesn't you know, kind of give you more sway or shouldn't give you more sway in, in what the group decides. Um, you don't want you know, that core group of two or three active participants to get everything that they want. And and the person who didn't feel empowered to speak up is just along for the ride. Yeah. And it's not that those people are necessarily trying to like make all the decisions, you know, it, it's they're they're coming up with an idea. Someone else is like seconding that or riffing off it. And they're having a great collaboration, but it's only happening between two or three people. And it's hard to necessarily notice in the moment that that's what's going on and if that happens again and again session after session eventually you have some people who end up feeling left out if you think about it this is sort of um what has happened uh traditionally to like female gamers and then um gamers in like less represented groups you you don't talk as much you don't volunteer as much simply because um your voice hasn't been heard as often and then it becomes this cyclical effect so in general it behooves everyone at the table to try to like stop for a moment and, and think okay who's been giving the most input and is there a way that we can spread that around a little bit yeah and i don't think you need to necessarily like track that on paper right? yeah tick tick marks aren't gonna like do anything useful yeah you just you just want to kind of keep a running tally in the back of your mind right of like Okay, so who chose this quest and and who chose where we're going and and who's making the major decisions, right? And who's had their input and who do I need to prompt and who do I need to spotlight so that they can get their chance to influence the direction? Yeah, and these are the kinds of things that you're probably already doing at your table, uh, but not necessarily doing it in a conscious manner. Like if you think about it, we've talked before about how like I don't really like games where everybody is like a servant to one particular character mm -hmm. you know like oh you're the noble and everyone else is the retinue yep. because that means that it essentially becomes the player of the noble who decides what it is we're doing and where we're going you know it stops being collaborative and we're all just sort of following that person around right, right? and then the the other six players decide how they're going to screw the noble over <laughs> that could be fun right <laughs> we're collaborating about how we're going to get out of this right <laughs> this is why you make the gm the noble <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah totally you know make make the gm the dmpc if you're going to have one in the first place totally this also comes to decisions that don't necessarily seem like decisions you know you come to a consensus at the table uh for things like tone is this going to be a serious game is this going to be a game where we joke a lot both in in character or maybe out of character um how do we interact with npcs for example do we take prisoners and that's not usually a conversation that people have at the beginning of a game like before you actually start playing and it doesn't need to be right but through your actions right part of part of your storytelling is okay i attacked the bandit great he drops to zero hit points is this a killing blow and now you know as the active player who's dealing this blow i have 
the decision about where where this is going. Mm-hmm. But, but it's useful to keep in mind when you're making that decision, how are the other, not just characters, but the players at the table are going to feel about this decision? Because if it suddenly turns into a bloodbath and that's not a game that everyone else has signed up for, then you've sort of wrested the the narrative away from everyone else. Yeah, or or likewise, if you're playing as vicious barbarians who are here to pillage and conquer and someone starts taking prisoners, it's like, hey, we're trying to get our, our invasion on. <laughs> like, we're not here to take prisoners. Yeah, I was here to turn my brain off and, like, not be an engineer right. for, like, four hours, <laughs> okay? Can we? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to have to figure out, like, logistics of prisoner, prisoner transport. <laughs> I know. I think that's one of the reasons that, like, uh, sometimes when Angela comes in, Angela's a lawyer, it, sometimes he'll take a backseat on planning because he's just like, man, I don't want to deal with that minutia right, right now. What I, you know what I want to do? Yeah, I want to stab some people. Right. I would like to stab them. <laughs> Um, I think this comes up as well with uh, with torture or just any type of mm-hmm. like crime and punishment, right? Um, how strictly to the like real world moral code do you plan to adhere? Um, and that's the sort of thing where if you have one player who's just going to torture until we get the information we need, and the rest of the group is sitting there, like one not wanting to imagine that, and two like not thinking that was the type of game we're playing, you end up with a sort of a conflict that needs to be resolved. Yeah, we talked about this a bit, and I think it was episode 12, Social Contract, where we talked about sort of just, you know, yeah, when we talked about drawing the veil. Keep in mind when you're nearing those situations where maybe someone will need to draw the veil. And then I think out of game, there's also contributions that each player is making, right? Even even just like what type of system are you playing? Are you going for something that's crunchy where everybody needs to learn the rules and they, they all interact intricately or something that's um, more storytelling focused and and lighter on the rules as a gm you can use story elements to solicit more of this this input from people um if the party fails and the village burns maybe it's up to them like up to the player to decide who it is who has survived or who who has died um that again uh sort of causes a stronger investment in your players because the character himself didn't decide, okay, like I leave this person behind and I save this person, but the player has. Yeah, it's it's uh it, it gives them the question of like, do I want to role play the relief that my family is safe, or do I want to role play the anguish that my family was lost? Mm-hmm. Right. Or <laughs> are they missing? <laughs> and I want to deal with the unknown. <laughs> um, I think another early form of collaborative storytelling, um, especially like in in the more um, magic item driven eras of D anD D was wish lists. So what type of what type of items do you want as rewards for your activities? Right. What are the things that make your character feel like your character? You hand that list to the DM uh, outside of the game so that when rewards do come up, you know they're within what you're looking for. And then when it does come time to divvy the rewards, um, has everyone gotten enough? Right. <laughs> Has everyone gotten a cool thing? Yeah. So let's talk about how to master the give and take of collaboration. You always need to keep in mind that it's a group story, right? It's not four individual storylines that happen to be running simultaneously in the same location. Um, and it, it's sort of it's one of the main reasons that it's been this you know adage that we've all adhered to forever is that you don't split the party. Yes, one reason is that it's easier to get murdered when you're alone. 
but the other is that it's just harder to tell a story together if everybody is in different locations. So you want to pay attention to the, the logistical impacts of your character decisions. Like, okay, do we kill the bandit or do we, do we take prisoners? Um, what do other people at the table actually feel about that? For example, in a battle, it probably doesn't matter which orc of four you attack. You no. Know, that's you probably a tactical decision take, on your part. Take orc three every time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah? Focus science. fire on three. Yeah. Geek orc three. Geek orc three. three. Unless there's a mage. Well, orc three is the mage. Right. Well, usually. Duh. Standard orcish <laughs> tactics. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a shell game. <laughs> right. The mage is under shell three. Right. <laughs> um, but but I think what you're you're getting to is that you know, which orc you attack isn't that important, but if one player decides that they're going to insult the queen or attack the king, then that affects everybody, right? Like, now the whole story has turned on the decision of a single player, um, even if that is in character, right? Even if you've sworn vengeance um, or, you know, there's some element of your backstory that justifies it, like, you're you're now turning the campaign on your own story, yeah, even if the queen only exists in this story because she was an NPC from your backstory. You know, even if, like, you brought her to the game, she was your input. Uh, attacking her, again, wrests the control away from everyone else and, and gives it to yourself solely. Right, which which is fine in a situation where the party has agreed to go to the queen to give you that chance. Right. But is not okay in, you know, a happenstance encounter where the party is not ready to deal with the impact and isn't expecting it and maybe doesn't even know about it and you just drop this on them. You're also kind of resting uh, the story away from the GM as well, right? Because maybe maybe the GM is like, oh, I'll give you, give you the queen. And the, the queen is an opportunity for you to make a, a contact and she's going to be the one who gives you quests. Mm-hmm. And now you punch her in the face. Right. I mean, now she has to arrest you and probably have you executed. But like, what else am I supposed to do that makes any sense? Yeah, it's like now we're running a prison break scenario. Yeah, like, and now I have to go plan a prison break scenario. Exactly. Fortunately, I always have one. Right. Um, and, and that also means, I think, keeping, keeping an eye on where in the session you are time-wise. Right? So if you're going to do that sort of thing where where it's going to really change the direction of the campaign or the the session... Do it at the end so that you're giving your GM a chance to actually process and prepare for whatever comes next. Mm. Because if you do it at the very beginning, like you've just screwed the GM's plans, which is rude. You've also like forced the GM to now improvise to make up for that, which is challenging. And then you've also wrested control from everybody else at the table, which is, you know, could be good or bad. So it makes it very difficult at the beginning. Yeah, logistics are really important with storytelling. I think another issue that people run into, especially newer players, is not respecting other players' control over their own characters. So, you know, you get in a situation where people are um, just riffing, right? Uh, the like player A says, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And player B is like, oh, wait, wait, what if you did this instead? And that's totally fine. The, it's appropriate for people to want to like um, plan together. You know, and maybe player A says, oh, that's a great idea. Okay, let's do that. Or I'll tweak it in this way. Or even, um, I don't think that's quite in character, uh, but let me try this instead, you know. Uh, But sometimes a a newer player or someone who just gets overly excited will say, uh, no, no, I think you do this. And that's even okay if it's not made 
in an insistent manner, right? Saying you must do this. Right. As long as it's it's presenting someone with a potential option that they absolutely have the right to say, no, I don't think that's right for yeah. my character or I'm not interested in doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we do at our table a decent amount is either like asking, hey, have you thought about doing this? Or yeah. the alternative is after it happens, you go, man, I really would have thought you did this. <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, it's too late. That's already, you've made your decision, right? But also like, I was, I totally expected you to do this and you didn't. And that, that's cool. Yeah. And sometimes we'll be like, oh, I wish, I wish you'd said that at the time. Cause I didn't think of that. Like, like as a player, I didn't think of that. And then, and then our GMs go nuts. <laughs> like, <laughs> nope, we're moving on. <laughs> this is taking forever. <laughs> so collaboration is undoubtedly right a give and take so let's talk about what are the things that you want to give to the group and what are the things you want to take from the group so all the time we talk about giving plot hooks lay down plot hooks that other people can use usually we're saying give them to the gm put them in your backstory seed them throughout uh, the game uh, mention them when you're talking in character but those are also useful for other players you know if you have a long lost brother and you don't know what they look like because you haven't seen them in 25 years, maybe that is something that another player sort of latches onto and goes, oh, that would be interesting if maybe that turned out to be me. Or maybe I know them. I just don't know that they're your brother. Right. Or if, um, let's say, a character is uh, carrying around a family heirloom that has a sort of a, a strange look to it. Let's say it's like a, a sword or something, right? And you happen upon a sword while you're dungeon delving, and it it also has a strange look. You know, ask, wait, does that look like the strange sword that she's carrying? Because they could be related. Mm-hmm. And and by asking, you have actually created the plot hook, right? It might not have been. It might have just been something unrelated. And now that gives the GM a chance to say, wait, yes. Yes, they do look alike. Now we're going to explore that. Yeah. I love that um, our group does a good job of turning coincidences into hooks. Into fate. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> of course this happened for a reason. Uh, like um, in our Dark Sun game, Jim's character and my character both speak halfling, but neither of us is halfling. And as soon as we found that out, I was like, wait a minute. I bet we learned this at the same place or there's definitely some connection because why do we both speak halfling? Right. You also want to give potential NPCs, um, and this this is as simple as giving a proper noun to other characters or to a GM. You give them the broad stroke so they can fill in the details and introduce to the game if necessary. Yeah, this is so useful for players who don't want to come up with those things on their own or just like hate coming up with names because, as we said before, names are just awful to come up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone else has already done that, they are from this town or they are from this clan or they traveled through this location, great. I'm going to input that into my backstory or into like my history or, you know, into my speech patterns. Mm -hmm. It's also good to give acknowledgement of other characters and of their characterization and personality. So it shows the other players that you're listening to their characters. You know, you can say things like, well, Carm won't like this, but I'm going to do blank. Yeah. And then you can tell it's working when everyone around the table is like, oh, yeah. Or if you're talking about a character who's like player is absent that day, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, usually someone will want to sort of step in and sort of speak up for them when you're making group decisions. Right. And they'll be like, yeah, you're right. Actually, Carm would hate that. He hates when we take prisoners. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you also want to give other players clear representations of who your character is and what they want. Because that makes it much easier for them to play off that. So if the 
person who's playing Karm hadn't done a very good job of expressing that, you know, they don't believe that you should be taking prisoners. They believe that, you know, combat is a, a, a test of strength and a kind of worship of cord, then it wouldn't have been so obvious to everyone at the table, like, oh, you know, what would Karm want or not want? Yeah. Sneaking around is not Karm's thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing he's uh, he's not here right now. Right. Because we're going to do a lot of sneaking around. I think it's also important here to give clear representation when you're changing things about your character, right? Like mm. if you're in the middle of, of sort of a character's personal arc or whatever and, and uh, the character's outlook is changing or personality is changing or, or viewpoint is changing, you want to make sure you highlight that so that everybody is aware of what's going on with the character and isn't still reacting to you as though you were yourself a year ago. Yeah, I think it's totally fine to say things like, this is going to seem really out of character to everybody, but I do this. Right. And here's why. Right. You also want to give information about your character or, you know, input about what the group should do in small packets. So I I know I do this a lot. You don't want to come up with the entire plan for storming the castle, you know, all the way from how we're going to disguise ourselves to how we're going to approach and who's going to sneak inside and drop the portcullis and then where we're going to storm and which, like, parapet we're going to end up on. You don't need to do all that at once. Give other people an opportunity. Just say, hey, I think we should try storming the castle, maybe with some disguises. Let everyone else riff from there. And then things that you want to take away from other players is the spotlight on occasion, right? And then let other players do the same. So when your character has a moment where it would be appropriate for them in the narrative to be involved, go ahead and make sure that your character is involved. But, you know, don't invalidate other people's choices in the process. Yeah, if it is the time and everyone has agreed, okay, we're going to go to the throne room, we're going to confront the queen, we're going to accuse her of heresy, that's what we're doing. And hey, you're the one who's going to do that because like, she's your NPC, you're the one who has a relationship with her. Yeah, you're naturally going to take the lead in that encounter. And there might even be some players or some characters in that scene who actually don't do a whole lot in the initial like social encounter. Right. Totally fine. Yep. Everyone's on board. We're going to do this. The spotlight is yours. You take it. Because I know that sometimes the spotlight is going to be mine. Yeah, like the first time that we met the chamber in uh, in Eberron mm-hmm. was like Bran's moment to finally put all of his stupid persuasion <laughs> to use. <laughs> that only works on dragons. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm a dragon. I've been touched by dragons. I look like a dragon. I have advantage on persuasion with dragons. I have expertise in persuasion. Uh, I am show here. me on the golem where the dragons touched you. <laughs> like, I am here to talk to these dragons. <laughs> Do not take this away from me. <laughs> And there are other players who are, you know, skeptical of dragons. They were like, yeah, but you do your thing. You do your thing. But you do want to make sure that uh, in the process of doing this, you're not invalidating other people's choices. So the, like, the traditional rogue sneaks out in the middle of the night and, like, goes burgling on their own. Maybe that is fine in the story, but sitting at a table, it now means that you've taken the spotlight. And for the next hour, no one else gets to, to do anything because they're sleeping. And you have co-opted the GM and the story. Or one that is maybe more about timing, like like Shane mentioned, is The Last Stand. You know, it's very cool and iconic for one character to be like, I will, I will hold the line. You know, I will hold the bridge. All of you run. Get out of here. Continue the quest. Whatever. Mm. That's a heroic, amazing moment that should absolutely happen sometimes. But don't do it at the beginning of the session. Right. Because <laughs> one, it means the encounter's over. No one else gets to play this encounter, and you're dead. Right. (laughs) 
Uh, likewise, at the end of the session, don't say, well, we can't leave you behind. You don't get your heroic last stand. We'll fight and die with you. Oh, my God. That happened in one game I was playing where a guy was literally like moving across the country. So it was his last session. And he was like, I make the last stand. And the guy was like, I, I don't I don't know. I don't want to leave you behind. We're like, no, this is the point. This is the, the point. point. Yeah. We're, we're never seeing him again. This is it. What are you doing? <laughs> And like the guy who's leaving is like, you're ruining this for me. Right. <laughs> Get out of the frame. <laughs> Which brings us to our next point. <laughs> Take cues from other PCs and players and from the GM. Yeah, when they're putting down those plot hooks, pick them up. Don't just stare at them on the ground and be like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Also, don't create new NPCs if you can use an existing one and, and further flesh them out, right? Build build upon what you already have rather than making broader uh, story. Yeah, it's much more interesting for two PCs to be connected to the same NPC because that also brings you closer to the other PC. Right. Um, and then I think what's important about that last stand example is incorporate input from others into your actions and plans especially when that input is no just let him do this <laughs> he's leaving uh yeah or you know the uh, storming the castle plan right okay so the man in black says we're gonna take the castle um i need a wheelbarrow and a holocaust cloak you're like okay well hold on how can i get a hold of those things how can i use that in furthering the plan rather than invalidating it or coming up with an entirely new parallel plan that has nothing to do with this person with what this person just put on the table Mm -hmm. so a couple different ways to actually do this while you're sitting at the table number one spirit stick this means that you're actually passing a physical object around to denote who has the floor you don't have to but i mean in in phoenix you have the torch that physically gets passed around right the the list of objects in in the room Mm -hmm. um the important thing about the spirit stick is to never let it touch the ground or you're cursed Okay. <laughs> I didn't go to that summer camp. <laughs> uh, this just means the, the active player has the floor. Okay. So if it's your turn, you say what happens. And it's essentially a conversation between that player and the GM. And what they say goes. And everyone else just sort of like waits while they figure it out. And then when that person's turn is over, it moves to the next person in initiative order. And then that player is active. And they and the GM figure out what's going on. And, of course, other people can build on what happened before once they're the active player. But they're not jumping in while the active player is talking with the GM. Yeah, that sounds very, very hard for me to deal with personally. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but it would be uh, very good for groups that want to stay wholly in character, mm-hmm. like like method acting. Yeah, they don't want to have any kind of out-of-character chatter right. while they're doing that. Next up is the Zach Morris, or at least I call it the Zach Morris. Because the hair is well coiffed and you have a giant cell phone. And you're going to break the fourth wall. Yeah, that, okay. that's exactly it. This is, I think, our style, which is you transition quickly back and forth between in-character conversations and then out-of-character conversations that's pretty heavily lampshaded. Like, I might actually say, when we're deciding on a quest, uh, yeah, uh, we've been in a lot of swamps and I'm, I, like, Asian, I am tired of swamps. So, like, could we do anything else? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we said we also said this in Dark Sun when we finally got out of the desert that oh, was slowly God. killing us. Uh-huh, it was uh-huh. like, hey, let's never do that again. Ever. Like, yeah, no, screw that. And then what happened? <laughs> We're going back into the desert. <laughs> no. So this is uh, good for group planning, uh, you know, ahead of time before you're actually 
playing out the scenario. You know, how are we going to storm the castle? Okay, everyone give input at the same time. Some of that's in character, some of that's out of character. Or it might be for like a shopping trip. You know, what items do we need? And some of that needs to be, oh, you know, I need a big giant two-handed sword. And other parts of that conversation might be, okay, you have two uncommons, I have three uncommons, but you have one rare, let's do the math. Yeah, um, it's also good if you have split the party. This gives you a way to interact uh, with each other at the table, even though you're not in the same place in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also easier to offer counterpoints and feedback to a player's decisions. Um, Obviously, you want to be careful not to try and invalidate their decisions, but you can ask those like leading questions, right? Like, what if you did this or have you thought about that? Yeah, and in a collaborative, like, sort of free-for-all situation like this, all players do need to feel empowered to push back on input they're getting from other people. So, you know, you say, what if you did this? And I'm like, eh, not my thing. But thanks for that. Keep thinking along those lines. Yep. Last one is Transformers, which is you do an out-of-character planning session where you're hashing out all the logistics, and then you transition to a strict in-character interaction. And the out-of-character decisions that you made ahead of time inform the actions that are happening, but then you can still do your method acting. <laughs> I would call that the writer's room, but that's fine. <laughs> there's, a, there's an 80s theme. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I think the, the main thing to be aware of here is that because you're making decisions ahead of time and you don't necessarily know what the in-character outcomes are, uh, this can go off the rails relatively quickly. Um, and everyone needs to just be ready for that. Yeah, and you know, I think there are some groups that sort of relish that. They like the idea that it can go so off the rails. And, you know, who knows where we're going to end up? And it's a story that we never thought would actually happen. But it's mm-hmm. nice that ahead of time you sort of planned out, at least here are my motivations. Here's what I'm trying to get out of this. Uh, like, my, Here's what my character is trying to get out of this. You know, what are our team goals and what do we have to work with? And then afterward, a debrief, super, super helpful. So... A couple more specific pieces of advice for players, because I think, you know, in general, GMs are a little more in tune with what the collaboration takes, because that is their role. But as a player, I think it's important to state what it is that you want or need from the game. Like, what are you what are you looking for from the session? And then ask for that. You know, make what you're looking for clear so that the GM can give that to you instead of trying to figure it out right and that might even be in character you know um i really need to get you know my uncle out of jail he's sitting there right now i I can't leave him in for another night so how are we going to fix this and you know keep in keep other other people are doing the exact same thing hopefully so keep them in mind and try not to step on their toes you know if your uncle's in jail but someone else's is about to get executed that might take priority right So what are some pitfalls of uh, more collaborative storytelling games? Well, you know, the old school mentality of player versus GM. Um, That definitely gets in the way of collaboration because each group doesn't want the other to succeed. Um, When the GM is viewing party success as their own failure, it's almost impossible to collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. The GM has to be rooting for the players and more importantly, rooting for the cool story. Yeah. And the players should be rooting for the GM as well. Like... When the, you know, giant red dragon comes out, that should be awesome for everyone. Yeah. Not, not, uh, crap. We're not there yet um, in the recap of Rogue Trader, but we're so close to the, like, horror arc that I ran. Yeah. It was really neat that 
I was completely messing with you guys and like I, I felt like you guys were so off balance but you were so into it <laughs> like you were so like I think pleasantly surprised that um, you didn't know up from down for a little while when usually you guys have a really good grasp of everything that's going on and you had the floor totally taken out from under you and it was like man keep it going <laughs> like make this mean something right because this is like this is totally different from what we normally do yeah there was a lot of okay Trank hates this yeah <laughs> this is awful but man I love this Can right keep doing this? <laughs> exactly <laughs> custom tailored horror perfect <laughs> <laughs> uh, another issue you can run into is if you try to play D&D as like a strict improv game so yes and is, is a very useful tool you know okay you on your turn said this happened I'm going to go with that I'm going to take it and I'm going to build on it mm-hmm. but you don't have to always say yes and it's okay to say no well no but no and <laughs> <laughs> yeah I it, the, the key to saying no is to is to offer something that continues the discussion you can't just shut down the thread at that point Otherwise, it stops being collaborative and starts being, you know, permissive, right? It's I'm asking the GM for permission to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the nice benefits of being both the actors and the audience is that you can retcon if you need to. You know, if like you're having an in-character conversation and it sort of goes off the rails, you're not really sure how it got here. You can both kind of be like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. No, wait, no, none of that happens. What we actually do is this. Yeah. <laughs> I think another pitfall you can run into if you have absentee players, um, if they aren't there for some of the discussion that sets the context for the direction of the story, and then they come in with their own ideas, you can kind of make a right turn, and then they try and immediately make a left, and you run into friction. Not because they are trying to ruin things or mess things up or, or change the direction drastically, but because they didn't get a chance to have the input or to hear the other people talking about it. So they don't know really why this decision got made. That's why um, I always send emails when people are gone saying, here's what you did. (laughs) And you loved it. You did what I wanted you to do. (laughs) You sided with my character. So to wrap this up, I think what I would would say as a takeaway is do what works best for your group. But one of the advantages of introducing elements of collaborative storytelling, um, especially if you're a new GM or playing with new players, and especially if you're playing D&D, is that these habits really set you up to learn and play other types of role-playing games relatively quickly. So if you're enjoying D&D and you want to see what else is out there, if you already have these habits kind of ingrained in your group, I think you're more versatile in dealing with some of the narrative concepts that get introduced in games like Dungeon World or Apocalypse World or Edge of the Empire or phoenix dawn command you know the games where it's not as strictly in one one camp's control at any given time it also makes it a lot easier to find a new gaming group if you need one you move to a new location or you know you want to try a different type of game because you're a better player yeah or you know a better gm or a more versatile one at least yeah you're better okay <laughs> let's, let's better add, than others let's add value judgments great <laughs> <laughs> do you hear that ishan yeah, that's me finally getting the spirit stick and you're all going to listen. You're all going to listen. Okay, yeah, then I need to move on to the character creation forge because I'm going to need a new character soon. 
But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building one of the worst characters of all time. Uh, best. One of the best, obviously, according according to him. Well, yeah, and, and grossest, according to anybody with a third of a brain. Uh, Prince Shizor from the Star Wars Expanded Universe novel Shadows of the Empire. So have you read this book? I have. I have also played the Nintendo 64 video game. It was... The whole thing was a was a marketing ploy to like generate interest for the re-release of the special edition oh. original trilogy, and it was supposed to fill in the gap between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Oh, wait, is that when they came out? Late 90s? Yeah. Oh, I snuck out of high school to go watch the re-releases. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, anyway. This book snuck out cast <laughs> apparently a publisher and an editor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe how that happened. Okay, so since you've actually read it, Tell us, who is Shizor? So Prince Shizor is the head of the Black Sun Syndicate, which is like a criminal organization that partners with the Empire at times, but also, you know, like, is sort of out in it for their own. They're not really undermining the Empire, but... um, He's got like a rivalry with Vader, right? Well, yeah, that's a weird thing, because it's very much like, uh, like that Don Draper meme, you know, like, I feel so sorry for you. I don't think about you at all. (laughs) Like, like Vader is just like, yeah, there's this annoying green guy who, like, I don't know, is hunting, like, who might be a minor annoyance someday, and I don't care, and I'm trying to find Luke Skywalker. Uh, And Shizor is like, I will outsmart Vader. I'm playing three-dimensional chess in my mind at all times, and I've also got the Emperor wrapped around my finger. And both of them are just like, that Shizor. What an idiot. That's Shizor. Spent an hour staring at a wall. Anyway, in the novel, he is basically the best at everything ever. He's super smart, uh, impossible to defeat in any, you know, meaningful way. Uh, he's a... Except orbital bombardment, I think. Yeah, so right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's he's from a race of, like, lizard people. Um so he's apparently supposed to be super analytical and he also exudes these like sex pheromones that like can seduce any woman in the galaxy and of course it's only not just women yeah i think it's only women really um yeah it's i look the book had problems yeah yeah more than a few um and then he also like you know is super rich and that's his superpower as well and like he's like extremely excessive with how he wastes his wealth and he has this uh like crazy good combat sex droid named Guri, who I think is secretly <laughs> running the whole operation behind him because he just sits in his chamber and broods all day. He's the worst. Well, thanks to Josh for suggesting that we build Shizor. <laughs> thanks to System Mastery for talking about Shizor yeah, for like nine episodes. That's what it is. For, thanks yeah. to System Mastery for doing Expounded Universe <laughs> and talking about this book and putting it in the front of my mind. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I miss uh, the old Star Wars Saga Edition game, which had literally the wealth talent that you could take mm-hmm. that just every time you leveled up, you got like 5,000 more credits. Yeah. That's all it did. Well, I think Shizor has like you know super wealth because it would be like five bazillion credits for all he wastes his money on oh all right 
Um, he's also disdainful of the Force. So actually, in this build, we are going to try to avoid giving him any magical abilities because he don't have none. All right. So what is the build then? It is Samurai Fighter 8, Swashbuckler Rogue 11, Monk 1. And obviously his race has to be lizard folk. Well, that's a little uncouth, right? Because right. you get like a con bonus and you can like what, eat, eat people. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. So we'll, we'll make him a Yanti. Well, Yanti gets spells. And also poison immunity. Okay, and I did not read the books, but I do know that Shizor really likes to eat Moonglow, which is like a super poisonous fugu pear, basically. Yeah, it's a puff, it's a puffer fish, right. basically. Yeah, which means he's not immune to poison. Right. So, I mean, if you want to play Adventurers League and don't want to have to use Volo's Guide, you could just reflavor a half elf, which is really the OP with thing to do here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what Shizor would do, of course. So. Samurai Fighter gets you extra attack, second wind, uh, fighting style, which. I, I, he's good as a melee combatant too. I think there's moments where he trains. Also, oh yeah, yeah. martial arts and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he uh, he trains in a chair. He just sits and works out in a oh, chair. Oh, right. He has like stim things. Yeah, like he exercises. He never actually works <laughs> when he works out. So that's great. Uh, but you can take archery fighting style, and that's his blaster training. Uh, and then he'll also get action surge. Samurai at level three gets fighting spirit, which for a round gives you advantage on all your. Uh, attacks and gives you a bit of temp HP. But really what we're going for here is level 7 Elegant Courtier, which gives Shizor proficiency in wisdom saving throws, but also wisdom mod to persuasion checks, which is going to stack with our expertise. Then Monk will get us martial arts and uh, wisdom to AC. Uh, you won't have any key. Which is good. That's the force. That's Yeah, that's obviously the force. From Rogue, we get the Rogue goodies, 66 sneak attack dice, cunning action, thieves can't. I mean, he is a he is a crime lord. Yeah, I mean, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Uncanny dodge and evasion, four expertises, I'm guessing probably persuasion, insight, right? Because Shizor's amazing at reading people. Isn't yeah, that it? Yeah. yeah, and he's also, also definitely deception because he lies right to the emperor's face and doesn't get immediately... You know, force lightning. Oh, that's that pretty good. Though in the crappy epilogue of the damn book, like the emperor's like, he was a useful tool and nothing more. Oh, eh. So apparently everyone knew that he was lying the whole time. So maybe no deception at all. <laughs> Swashbuckler 3 is going to give us charisma to initiative, which is nice. But really what we're going for is Swashbuckler 9 for Panache. Which is uh, the chance to make a make a check to charm a target. Yeah, you make a persuasion check as an action, and the target is charmed by you for a minute. This is unlimited. You can use it as often as you want. Sounds like pheromones to me. That's right. And at 11, you're getting reliable talent, which means that those persuasion checks are starting at a minimum of 10, plus your charisma modifier, plus your wisdom modifier, plus two times your proficiency, which I think at, what, level 18 is probably the earliest that you can do that. You're looking at... 10 plus 5 plus 4, 9 plus another 10. Yeah, I mean, you've so got a base like in the 20s. High 20s, yeah. maybe even 30. Yeah. And you have a 50% chance of rolling higher than that. Right. So, yes, Shizor can can seduce anybody. Gross. I mean, who doesn't love sexy lizard people? <laughs> Not Leia. With hair. With hair, right? <laughs> He's got hair. I don't understand. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't. Remember. I can't speak to that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so in terms of leveling order, I think we would start Rogue One, as always. Then we would take our Monk level. 
then take Rogue to 11, and then start the fighter training. Uh, Shizor is obviously a pretty high-level guy before he gets around to bothering learning martial arts. Yeah, what, third most powerful person in the galaxy. Like, right. Yeah. Right. So normally we would talk about our character ideas for this character, but I think the only idea that's important is make him less rapey, please. <laughs> Because Oh, is that in the books too? God, is he uncomfortable. Oh, that's with it. awful. Yeah, I mean, the book is a character assassination of Leia, but uh, Shizor does not come across well either. Well, that's unfortunate. So, before we wrap up, uh, want to give a quick update. We are still waiting for a lot of t-shirt sizes. We've only really received a handful. So, an email went out last month. I will send another one shortly, but if you can send an email to totalpartythrill at gmail.com with your address and t-shirt size, um, if you are at the $10 patron level, uh, we want to get those ordered and sent uh, quickly. And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, you can do that by checking out patreon.com slash totalpartythrill, uh, where we have our list of rewards as well as links to some content, uh, including a link to the Character Creation Forge Codex. Which, which you made possible. Exactly. Uh, that has all of the Character Creation Forge builds indexed back to all the way to episode one. Yeah, that's how we're able to do this every single week. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about dealing with overly cautious players. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building safety in numbers. Well, that's it for episode 124 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 